Hey y'all, hey, welcome back to another episode of the Why Don't We Talk About This podcast. I'm your host, Paula McMillan Perez, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. On today's episode, we're going to be doing a little mental health frequently asked questions. Several of you, and I appreciate it, have reached out and asked specific questions about mental health, about access, how do I get it, how do I pay for it. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to do a deep dive into some of these, provide a little information, and some of what has been coming up. So here we go. The first method in which you can access mental health services is private pay. So basically what that means is that you go into your pocket or swipe your debit card, credit card, um, health savings account or flexible spending account to be able to basically pay your therapist, your clinician, your social worker for their services. Now, a couple of things also come up with this because there are different price ranges for different providers depending on different things. So that could be specialty. That could be their hours of operation. So for example, um, there are a good bunch of folks, as we know, that may work on nine to five. So they may be looking for weekend or evening appointments. So because that's a priority time, they may charge a little bit more for those sessions or if they have a very specified skill set, have received additional certifications, maybe only focus or are a specialist in one thing. Those are things to think about. And prices can range. I have seen clinicians also utilize sliding scale, which is a form of private pay. And basically what sliding scale is, it means that a scale is utilized by the clinic, the practice, or the practitioner based on the client's income. So if you do not make a whole lot of money, it doesn't make sense for the clinician to charge you something that you cannot afford to pay. So based on that, there usually are a few things that come along with it. So for example, in my private practice, one of the things that I will do is I will just ask for income verification. Not because I don't believe the client, but we just want to make sure that the sliding scale spots that are allocated are actually going to people who need them. And then we may ask for recertification. Um, Some of my colleagues have done every three months, some have done every six months. And many have said that most of the time they don't even need their clients to recertify because they will come and be upfront with the information. But for example, Um, Let's say that I have uh, 10% of my caseload is sliding scale. That means that I reserve a certain amount of spaces for individuals who may not be able to afford my regular private pay rate. And then as a result of that, we will have either an application or a timeline in which those services make sense. So sliding scale falls underneath the um, private pay portion of how you can access therapy. Another way that you can also access is by using your uh, either employee-sponsored health insurance or if you are paying for health insurance yourself. So some things that are helpful to know about insurance is that there are different types. So we have HMOs, we have, which I believe stand for health maintenance organizations. We have um, PPO, which I think is private payer or participating 
organization. Clearly, I don't know all my acronyms, so please feel free to fact check me all. And one that I have been hearing come up more often is EPO, and I'm not 100% on what that one breaks down to, but it's important for you to know when you have this plan what it falls under. And yes, insurance can be confusing. I'm a whole grown woman and there are still things I don't understand about my own health insurance and as somebody who takes it. So one of the things that I do to kind of figure that out is I will call the insurance. One, because I need a receipt. Like you're not going to tell me that, oh, they covered this, this and that. And then I go and then I'm told otherwise. So I may look online at my provider manual. I will call and I will speak to someone and I will document their name. Um, And I will ask specific questions on how do I access therapy, mental health care, psychotherapy? Um, If I want medication, how do I access medication management? So these are some of the questions you're going to want to ask your representative um, when you speak about insurance. In addition, you are going to ask, is there an amount of approved sessions? So some insurances may put a cap on the amount of sessions that you can get with a provider. Part of the reason for this I have several feelings about it, but that's for another episode. But you want to be clear, too, on how many things is your um, health insurance going to reimburse for? What are they going to pay the provider for? So insurances contract with clinicians with group practices at a specific rate. So the contracted rate is what your provider pays. So when you pay your copay, that is usually roped into the rate. So you pay your portion, whether it's $10, $15, $25, you have your session. And then after your session, your therapist will bill your insurance and that will reflect the copay that you paid if you have a plan that requires copays. And then the therapist, hopefully within a timely fashion, will receive whatever their contracted rate is for your service. And that's it. But some things that are really, really important to know, especially as it comes to the beginning of the calendar year, you are responsible for knowing what your deductible and any co-insurance you have is. So for example, if your plan is an individual plan, so it's just you on the plan, and you have to meet a $4,500 deductible for the year, that means that you need to pay out $4,500 worth of fees to whatever provider you go to within the insurance for your therapy to be 100% covered. If you do not know what this means, that's totally cool because it is very um, layered and I'm giving a basic explanation. So I'm not saying go out there and trust Google, but you're definitely going to want to fact check me. And the best way to do that is to reach out to your current healthcare provider It is a pain to get people on the phone, but it is the best way to get information because sometimes things change. We cannot always trust these websites. And for those of you who have gone online and have went to find a directory of providers from your plan, some of what you may find is some of those people are no longer in the plan or they remove themselves or they retired or they're not accepting new clients. They do not update regularly. So the best way that you can identify The most current information is to speak with a live person who works at the place. So in addition to all of that, 
you're also verifying what are your benefits when you call. So for example, this would, what I'm speaking about now, seeing a therapist in the community, seeing someone virtually, that is outpatient because you may be identified as a patient, usually a client, could be participant. Those are all some of the terms that we use, but you're not in a hospital. You're seeing someone in the community. So you're calling to verify what are your outpatient mental health benefits or behavioral health, as some plans like to call it. Now, there are also plans that have inpatient. So if you get into a point in your life where you feel or your therapist or other behavioral health provider feel that you may be best served by going into a hospital to get a higher level of care. So a level of care that's meeting you where you are because where you are currently isn't facilitating your needs, then that might be another option and there may be specific benefits to that. So you're going to want to ask, what are your outpatient behavioral health or mental health or psychotherapy benefits when you speak to your insurance provider? Another thing that's really important and any of you who engage in therapy currently or those of you that might be interested, you're going to want to find out the person or the clinic or practice that you're seeing is what fees are you responsible for? So for example, in my own private practice, if a client no-shows, so they schedule an appointment, but they don't show up for whatever reason, or if it's a late cancellation, so anything within 24 hours, if you cancel late, you are responsible for the fee. Now, mine is set up that you are responsible for my full fee, which means if I am taking you private pay, that is my full fee. Usually, the private pay rate and the insurance contracted rate are two different rates. So as a result of that, I make sure it is listed in my practice policies that you sign at intake, which is the beginning of the therapeutic process, that you know what you are responsible for. But I also do what is called, actually, what is the term called? Oh, I have a, a within the week reschedule. So let's say emergency pops up or you have like a work thing, you're running late, you're not feeling well. As long as you reschedule with me within the same week, there is no cancellation fee. But it is really important to also identify that while it may feel unfair or um, a little bit high or you may not understand why it is that you have to pay these fees, please remember that this is how we earn our living. So if you cancel late or if you don't show up, that is a session that could have gone to another client or that is some that is um, a time frame that could have been allocated to do other work, which means that we are losing money that allows us to take care of ourselves and take care of our families. We wouldn't want that for you or any other provider and many other health and mental health and personal care providers charge the same um, fees because we need to make sure that we are also protecting our practice and our business. And sometimes, to be perfectly honest with you, when money is involved, it keeps people honest. Like, you don't want to lose money. So if that means you send me a text saying, okay, I'm not going to be able to make it within 48 hours, cool. That saves you money and it gives me the opportunity to save some on my own end. So that's definitely something that you are going to be 
or hopefully going to be 100% clear about when you begin seeing a provider because it is listed in their policies. And if it is not listed, you want to make sure that it is documented somewhere what you are responsible for because it's very important that you protect your wallet. Just putting that out there. One of the last things I also want to share about insurance is that some of our health insurance health insurance is rather, they have something called out-of-network benefits. Most people don't know what this means. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't know what it meant until I became a social worker. So basically what it means is that if, let's say, you find a therapist that you want to see that actually is taking new clients, because I know it's hard out here in these streets right now, and you are on, let's say, a directory where they are identifying you know, what they treat, what their um, availability is. And then you scrolling down like, okay, I'm excited. And I'm trying to figure out, do they take my insurance? And you see out-of-network benefits. You might be like, great. Or you might be like, what does that mean? Because they don't take my insurance. All out-of-network um, means is that the provider doesn't have a contract to get paid with your provider. That doesn't mean that you can't see them. What that means is that it's your responsibility to call up your insurance company and ask, do I have out-of-network benefits? If I do have out-of-network benefits, then what what is included? So similar to when you're trying to verify your benefits, verify if you have a certain number of sessions attached to your plan or verify if you have outpatient, inpatient coverage. You're calling to verify what your out-of-network benefits are, like what do they include. And the reason that that's really important for you is because the way out-of-network works is that if you go to see a therapist that is out-of-network, you are going to pay them their full session rate. So if, let's say, for the sake of argument, that you come to me and my full session rate at that time is 150 then at the be- end or the beginning of that session, you will be giving me $150. And at the end of that session, I will be giving you a receipt, also known as a super bill. And that is something that you use to give your insurance company or if your provider, so let's say me in this example, let's say I'm utilizing a service that helps you with that or I'm doing it on your behalf, which doesn't happen super often, but it it's a nice thing <laughs> that providers can do. But depending on the volume of the practice, sometimes it's not always realistic. But, you know, we want to try to find ways to support our clients. So you will take that super bill and you will send that to the insurance and then the insurance company will reimburse you. They will send you a check. Sometimes they do a direct deposit if you're partnering with a site like... um, advocate or reimbursify they most likely have a direct deposit option so you get the money back part of the challenge sometimes though with out-of-network benefits is that you actually have to have the money to give up and wait for the reimbursement but it can be a nice um, alternative for individuals that don't necessarily need to use someone that is in network and in network basically refers to a clinician that has a contract or a contracted rate with the provider. So that's in-network and out-of-network means that they don't have any um, contract or any relationship with any health care, uh, any health insurance. Another option to access care is utilizing an EAP, which is an em- employee um, assistance program. So 
traditionally that I've noticed, large employers, so let's say um, the city of New York, Starbucks, Chipotle, McDonald's, these large organizations very well have an employee assistance program. And one of the things that's really beneficial about that is that these programs allow for you as the employee to access different supports that can assist you and or your family. One of those supports usually is mental health or behavioral health. So depending on how your EAP is structured, they may have staff members who, like myself, are um, you know licensed mental health providers that you can speak with that provide these services on a short-term basis. So short-term could mean six weeks. It could mean three months. Usually this is made clear to you at the beginning of the process. Now, other EAPs will do just that. They'll see you short-term, and they may refer you to one of their partners, which could be somebody that has a solo or a group practice, somebody that has a clinic. And for the most part, they usually refer to clinicians that are in network with your current insurance to make your life easier. Every once in a while, they have outside Um, of your insurance providers because they have built up a directory of services. But for the most part, um, speaking as somebody that has used an EAP in previous employers and someone who currently accepts clients um, that have uh, come from EAP, that's usually the case. So one of the things that you're going to want to ask if you reach out to your um, employee um, assistance program is how short-term is this service? So how many sessions do I get? And after those sessions are over, if the issue or the concern hasn't resolved, or if I need a higher level of care, or if I need continued support, what happens then? Or can I access this using my health... Sorry, y'all. Can I access this using my health insurance? These are things that these staff members are trained to tell you. So outside of that, one of the things that they can do is they can provide you referrals to additional clinicians or additional services related to the reason that you came in. And it's not just mental health. So if you do have an employer that offers an EAP, I encourage you to either go on the site or call up and speak with a member representative that can tell you about all the services that are accessible to you. It's a wonderful service. And I wish more employers would get on the bandwagon because it could really increase the longevity and the health and wellness of their employees. So now our last one. If you don't got no money, Because you know what? You may be unemployed. You may be undocumented. You could have fallen on, you know, some circumstances that just make it extremely difficult for you to allocate any funds whatsoever. You um, may not necessarily know that there's any possibility or support out there. But there's a few options, depending on where you live. It can um, be challenging, but not impossible. So the first one, if you are undocumented, if you recently came to this country or if you have been here for a while and do not have access to healthcare, one of the ways that you can get seen and get 
the support that you need is by identifying what is called a federally qualified health center. You can put this term into Google and it will take you to links that will help you identify your closest um, FQHE, so federally qualified health center, closer to you, where you can most likely access, and I say most likely because there most likely is a wait, access medical and mental health care. So you do not need to be a citizen. You do not need to be a legal resident. Anyone can walk in there without fear of somebody telling on you, without fear of being reported, because that's that what they do. They are federally qualified to provide health services. Feel free to fact check me. But realistically, it's a great option for those individuals that realistically absolutely need some care. We all know somebody that, like, I'm not going to the emergency room. I'm not going to the doctor. But absolutely need the care. So knowing that this is an accessible service and they have these all over. So identifying the one that's closest to you is no more difficult than just going on Google. Another option for individuals who are citizens or do have residency and are not earning an income or earning very little is to go to your local hospital. So here in New York, um, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, HHC, any city hospital you can go into and they have staff members that will support you in applying for Medicaid plans that are offered to um, individuals that have no income or low income because it is imperative that we take care of our mental and physical health. So while there aren't a plethora of other options, there are community-based agencies or other supportive services that may offer pro bono mental health. If you are interested in this, it is something that I definitely encourage you ask the provider that you identify with if they do have any pro bono openings or if they do have pro bono slots. So the same way I mentioned sliding scale earlier in the episode, that there are individuals that they may have, whether it's quarterly, annually, a certain number of slots that they will allocate for pro bono cases, whether it's for a specific specialty or not. So it's worth a shot. Ask the question. And I know that it's not necessarily super easy to be able to ask, but this is a wonderful opportunity to be able to advocate for yourself and your needs in a way that makes sense for you. So basically, that's it. Those are some ways to kind of get you started and how do you begin to access mental health care. If you have any questions about anything that I said or if you fact check me and you realize that I made some mistakes, please reach out and let me know. I want to improve so that I can be sure I am giving out the best course of information that I can. I don't know all the things, but the things that I do know I put out there to the people. So until next time. The Why Don't We Talk About This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health care. It is hosted by me, Paula McMillan-Perez, and is produced by Fonzie Tri Media.